Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, here we are once again to talk about narcissism. Yeah. Let's just talk about ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have some good news for you and I. This is from a passage from uh, Thomas Hollick. We're back. There's a chapter in his latest book on narcissism, which uh, is really fascinating. This is probably one of the best chapters where you see both his skill as a theologian and a therapist come together because he talks about it in some really creative ways. So here's the good news for you and me from Brother Hollick. There are occupations that would seem to require a greater than average degree of narcissism, probably to inure those people against various frustrations and rid them of self-consciousness in the face of others. In particular, these are professions associated with public performances, from actors and politicians to preachers. The narcissism of people in such jobs ought not to surprise or cause us offense, nor should people in that position be too depressed to discover they have an above-average level of narcissism. It is a matter of accepting it, being aware of it, and learning to manage it. Many saints, if we read their live stories attentively, were markedly endowed with narcissism. Oh, my dear St. Augustine. <laughs> but they were able to harness it to the plow, to borrow a nice image from the legend of St. Procopius. It is simply a matter of taking care always not to let that power dominate us, harness us to a plow, and plow with us. I wonder if podcasters are higher, too. I would guess. Pod- well, I don't know. We're, we're, we're preaching pro- preachers and podcasters. We may. P squared. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, to the me. The problem that... is all that penis. Preach P squared, preacher. Oh, my goodness. Somebody, somebody taking the Myers Briggs, a married couple I knew, like years ago, they were talking about P and J on the Myers Briggs, you know, ENFP, INFJ, and stuff. And sort of P's are the people that, you know, they want to go and read the back of every movie in the video store back when there were video stores. But, you know, J's are like, hey, we go in, we make the decision, make a plan, make a decision. And, and it's like the wife was so illuminated to some of their marital. A dynamic. She's like, oh, Glenn, the whole problem this whole time has been your penis. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. That is a good, that is a good joke. So uh, maybe we should decide, define narcissism. Um, how, when you hear the word narcissism, what do you think? Uh, I think of myself. No. <laughs> yeah, well, you think of Narcissus, who was the young man, right? He was so good looking that he just liked to look at his reflection in the mirror and ignored, I was it like a lovely river nymph or something. And she was brokenhearted and went to Aphrodite and Aphrodite turned him into the Narcissus flower, which is lovely and grows by riverbanks. Yeah. You know, there's, it's interesting. Maybe it's how like, or someone else, you know, what's the uh, depth psychology behind these myths. And uh, I might be how like who speculates, maybe that's suicide that, you know, there's such a self-absorption that he ceases to exist. I mean, that could be part of what that's pointing to. It could be that. Yeah. But, you know, we uh, we certainly, the word, the diagnosis of narcissistic personality has been thrown out frequently uh, since last November. And this idea of a self-preoccupation with self, um, which may actually be even exasperated in the postmodern moment in which we live, where the individual is glorified. And I think uh, 
looking at what exactly that is and what dimensions that there might be exist in some of us. And particularly, you know, I thought to me it was really it was really uh, helpful because those of us who are in leadership in ministry who also you know try to take the spiritual life seriously, you know, we struggle. I struggle with the whole ego. I mean, on some levels, you can't be a leader without ego. I I walk into you know I've walked into classrooms to teach people. Uh, I walk into church boards and elder groups to try to help them get through their problems or to help see the new ways. And if you walk into those rooms saying, gosh, guys, I don't know what we're going to do, <laughs> you know, that, does, that doesn't help. There has to be a certain amount of confidence, a certain amount of sense of who you are if you're going to lead, if you're going to be a change agent. Matter of fact, you know, uh, every Sunday, those of us who preach, we get up and say, this is what I think God is saying here. You, you can't do that if you're faint of heart. Yeah, no, I mean, you probably can say, I don't know. I mean, in fact, maybe that's a function of a sort of healthy sense of self. I think, I think cause, because walking in, I think, with a healthy sense of self doesn't mean that probably right that we'd always have to know the answers or know the direction. But also part of it is you, you're comfortable even admitting that. Like there's a kind of – Well, and, if you're, and they've, asked, if they've asked you to come in – to help them discover a direction, yeah. you need to at least be able to be confident in your skills to help them process help them discover and, things, and help yeah. them discern. Yeah, I mean, that's really, frankly, that's what teach, good teaching is. It's helping it become their own. So, and trying to inspire them to be lifelong learners of theology and, and well, if you're, if those of us who teach that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, but you have to be able to feel like you have something to say or something to give or you shouldn't be in that position. Yeah, yeah, I th- I think that's I think there's that's true. I mean, and it's interesting how like begins by saying the opposite of hate or love isn't hate; it's self love. Yeah, he he really uh, and some he really takes on at least the way that is constructed in a lot of places. Yeah, but he doesn't. It's interesting though because he does want to say that when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself, there is an implicit assumption that there is something like self love, but it's a different kind of self love. I mean, it's a different than what we're thinking of. You know, I mean, I think I heard somebody. It might have been Tim Keller or something say that humility isn't thinking uh, less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Yeah, because you don't have to. Right. There's a sense in which that that, that you know, and also, I mean, Haley thinks that obviously to love, you're, nobody l- learns to offer the gift of love without having first received it. Right. And so that's why, I mean, all sorts of psychological studies show that at age zero to two, I mean, the way Frank Lake says this is if you get the message that acceptance is a gift— Psychologically, you're set up a lot better than if you get the sense that acceptance is a reward in order in that you get as a result of sort of you sense a deep conditionality in the affection of your probably initially mother and then both parents. I think that there's something about that that well. So then, if 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 narcissism, if the if what frees us from it is real love, right? Like I, it seems like that there's a paucity of people feeling loved in modern culture. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and it's part of what he even says. He's not even sure what people nowadays of what people call love is even love in our current culture because it's, you know, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's, it's feelings, it's experience, um, you know, it's something that, um, you know, we're always falling out of love. Uh, and, I, you know, and if, is, is love, is genuine love something you can actually fall out of? I mean, you know, I, don't, I'm, I sure hope the love of God is not something God falls out of. <laughs> yeah 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 i mean and i mean this is this is obviously uh something that i mean i i, I it's it is interesting to note right this is we're probably 
unique as a culture in that in in in, in that this is a like this is i mean this is a technical psychological term but the armchair version of it, it is thrown around pretty much everywhere you know and, and i wonder how much of this is also like with the advent of social media you just think so much more i would think about how people see you how you're refracted back you know reflected back because you're looking at it all the time right you're so mm-hmm. you're 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 you know curating a self all the time, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Like, so you, you kind of have this self that you're curating and creating, which, it, I mean, you can't help it, but fall into the kind of, some kind of narcissistic patterns, I would think, just given the phenomena of, of that reality that we all deal with. Right, yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting, there were studies done uh, after the Columbine shooting about what was the problem. And again, uh, where did I... I how many did I say there's already been 1,400 uh, mass shootings in this country already this year? 1,400, something like that. Wow. Yeah, something crazy. At any rate, um, but one of the things, the like the Columbine shooters, uh, what you know, a lot of, what was wrong with them? And one of the things, and I, I, is it Andrew Solomon or Andrew Sullivan? I get those sometimes I mix them up in my mind. Andrew Sullivan wrote a book on uh, Far From the Tree about kids that turn out very different from their parents. It's a great book, by the way. Uh, but there was an article uh, and and that talked about what what is the nature of, of these folks. And one of the things they found was not that they had self-hate and bad self-images. That would have been the – that's kind of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, what's wrong with kids. But it turned out they had a hyper sense of themselves. They, they were uh, uh, narcissistic personalities. It wasn't that they felt too badly about themselves and they were isolated. Uh, again, there are kids that are bullied that do end up – you know, doing this, but these were kids who um, had an exaggerated sense of themselves. I mean, John Diello got in trouble for this in certain circles, but that was part of what was behind his work on the coming of the super predators was that the breakdown of our communities had really created empowered sociopaths who do great damage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, Diello's work was controversial. But it, was, it was more controversial 20 years later. Oh yeah, well, because yeah, cause Hillary, it kind of caught up with Hillary Clinton. Yeah, it did. Yeah, at the time, everybody touted left and right touted his work, John DiIulio. Yeah, who was um, he? Was the wasn't he? He was uh, like one of the first faith based initiative uh, guys in the White House and quit after a month. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, Bill, I mean, what? Do you, so, how do? You, how was Haley? How does Haley get us out of? Haley get us out of this? What light does she shine in the darkness? Well. Uh, I think humility is probably um, proper humility is generally the solution to every problem in the spiritual life. Matter of fact, from a Christian perspective, probably humility is the answer to every psychological, spiritual, perhaps even social problem. Because in humility is is not self abasement, but it's a proper understanding of one's perspective first to God and then to the rest of the world. Um, if you are in the center of God's love, you don't have to be the center of the world. You know, I, I, again, a spiritual director once said to me, and I've never forgotten it. You know, what what can satisfy a man if God is not enough? And I do think I uh, I was talking to um, I had breakfast with my good friend Don Baker, uh, who's a uh, regular listener and one of the great just always 
great inspirations in my life. He's he's more than a friend. He's someone who I who teaches me every time I talk to him, every time I think about him, about the Christian faith. And he was talking about, I think this was something that his wife Anne was reading, about the stages of kind of spiritual development. And one of the problems with American Christianity is that they don't want to get beyond where, you know, you start, you know, you have the initial stages, and then you start seeing the hard work of faith, where there's, you know, there's a sense where there's more doubt. Um, you begin to have to, you know, uh, there's whole volumes written, you know, in the spiritual writers. This is when the consolations go away. This is sometimes a purgation period after that initial time of enlightenment and illumination. This is really when the work of the soul begins to happen. And a lot of people don't want any parts of that. They don't want a faith that makes them struggle. They don't want to make a faith that makes them think. They are kind of pretty content and experiencing a faith that makes them feel good. And I think that's the danger with that is that that really can end, you know, again, I'm nothing against comfort and consolation. I'm all for that. I could use, I'm always happy when it happens and I try to give it in my ministry in my life. But, um, but we don't, we don't grow in that. I, I think I, uh, I wrote this somewhere. I can't remember recently. I wrote this down and shared this story. It may have been even in my sermon Sunday. But um, I probably served it, shared it here as well. When I was uh, my oldest son, uh, who's a great dad, by the way, so it's just it's fun to celebrate your son as a great father on Father's Day. But he and I were talking last year, a couple years ago, he had this great day where he got this promotion and I got to celebrate with him and he, he paid for it with his expense account, which was even better. Uh, and we Food always tastes better when it's free. That's right. And when your son can buy something from you from his expense account, there's double satisfaction in that. But he was talking about this period when he was his junior, senior high school. There's a lot of tragedy that happened. Uh, I write about it in the next Mockingbird issue if you want to look at it, read it. And what happened was I almost knew every – I probably knew 70 percent of uh, kids in that high school. If not by first name, I knew them in relationship. I knew a lot of kids in high school. Was there a lot in the midst of the tragedies? Probably 90 percent of Ben's graduating class had been to something in our church – uh, you know, they had heard me do funerals for their friends. They had seen me be there. A lot of them I'd helped in different ways. And he said to me, you know, my friends adored you. And he said, sometimes I was jealous of them. He said, because I wish I could get the kind of, I wish I could just get that from you all the time. And uh, he says, because sometimes you were kind of, you were tough on me. It's which I could say, because I loved you more. And I think part of what breaks us out of narcissism, whether it be spiritually, psychologically, is embracing some of the suffering that comes when we realize we're not who we should be, when we realize we're not the center of the cosmos, when there are things that are not right with us, when we have humility enough to look at ourselves more honestly, and we have enough humility to allow there to be space for others. Yeah, actually, though, I don't think, I think, so I was just listening to this podcast, Invisibilia, on... About confirmation bias, about uh, racial bias and prejudice, right? And so they basically talked about how they started with this guy, a story of a Fox newscaster, a local affiliate kind of host at some major city who adopted an African American child. Great, you know, it sounds like they're a great family. And he realized one day, and he was thinking that he'd have to tell her about racism with Ferguson and everything. He was dreading, I'm going to have to tell her. She, you know, she's very young. And, and then he caught himself racially profiling a black guy. Very explicitly, you know, because he was the guy was near an older woman. And he thought, always thought it was a good Samaritan. I'm going to keep an eye on this. And then he saw the, the, this guy's son run into his arms. He thought, oh, my God, I, I, I felt terrible. And, and then they started talking about bias. And they said that basically that this psychologist, this psychologist figured out, research psychologist figured out that 
flower. Okay, so everybody knows uh, people like flowers. They find them very beautiful, attractive. And most people don't feel the same way about insects. There are a few people that go into like <laughs> entomology. But, but so he decides like if you ask, you know, to come up with positive words about flower, it's easy, a beautiful, fragrant. Then if you ask, uh, tar- come up with positive words about tarantula or kind of like, it becomes really hard. So then he's. I think tarantulas are pretty cool looking. Cool. Okay. Well, then you're the weird. But. Uh, you, you that's, have, about you, all, that's all I got. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and then he said he found himself, he, he did a study where he tried to see how quickly he could come up with positive associations for traditionally white names, Chip, Valerie, the, or, you know, and then he did the same thing with traditionally black sounding names, Jamal, and this. And it took him longer, significantly longer. And so did everybody he tested. And he said that when he realized what he's like, I, I was. Thrilled as a research scientist, and I felt awful as a person <laughs> because he thought, "Wow, I found a real instrument." But that's an aha moment. Yeah, well, yeah. Here's the thing, though. That's interesting. That people um, report today, if you self-survey, a lot less racism, right, than they used to report. But then, when they take tests like this, they come out a lot more prejudicial than they than normally people test in the culture. And some of that, they're saying it's impression management. They're not dis- incre- like they're not trying to be deceptive but they just can't handle the view of themselves as not as progressive or open-minded or virtuous as they think they are yeah. it, it's just untenable for them and so there it's, t- it's funny it's like people self uh with surveys i use people uh self-report how much they actually worship a church oh sure yeah those are always inflated, right like so but then it's funny because this guy was saying like the problem with prejudices is that they actually confirm that like let's say you stereotypically see somebody and you think, oh, this person has these characteristics. Uh, they're gay or they're this or that. And then you generally you don't walk up, hey, are you gay? Oh, shoot. Wow, I really have some some stereotypical and prejudicial things. And, you know, I, like you just normally don't have the means to, 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 to check the bias, the bias and prejudice so that it can be, and he's like, it has to kind of be analyzed, challenged, maybe passed. But part of it is, he said, most of us can't handle it emotionally and morally. And so, Basically, we, we can't handle the truth. Right, exactly. Right. And so, so this is the thing that, that, that it becomes so hard to deal with because you've got to have a non judgmental view of yourself to be able to see these realities about yourself and not condemn yourself, but actually engage the, the truth of, hey, you know, I, I have some prejudices and, and, and they are not helping me see the world clearly or truly or in maybe the most salutary way. And so, but could, isn't what, as a Christian, we say, and, and sometimes that means I'm a sinner. And I need to ask for forgiveness. Right. But I think that most, I think, I think most of the hardest thing, right? Like this is, this is like what, what is the, is the challenge, right? Because Calvin says, right, knowledge of God, knowledge of self are so intertwined. But if you come into the light, you see what, how broken you are, right? And so you don't want to come into the light because most of us would rather not see that. And so you have to know, it's a Bart says like, it's almost like you can't even conceive of sin until it's forgiven. Because you can't even look into the fullness of it. And so I actually think that there's very, I think when people are, I, I, I don't think people often find deep comfort to the things that actually are the most deleterious and keep them from being loved or really loving. I think oftentimes people go to find themselves in religious institutions and communities and, and grab to-do lists and checklists or, or get on the vision on with this church's vision, Matt Johnson is with the vision questing Jesus, right? Like Bonhoeffer talks about dangerous visionaries can be so. 
in order to avoid actually what's really killing them and hurting them. And so, because a lot of that, if I just go and I learn the right religious doctrines, or if I convince everybody I don't do any of the taboo things, or I speak the shibboleths, or if I, uh, if I say that we're unpart of the good, progressive, uh, socially minded people, you know, and, and we steam the works of love and that sort of thing. Actually, I think a lot of what's deeply under us, like the underground river, never gets tended to and doesn't actually get healed. Yeah, but I also think he who's forgiven much loves much. Right, right, I, right. And I think the problem isn't – I think it's very easy to get up there and tell people uh, – to give people pictures of the of the good life because the good life's easy to describe, right? Like you, it's like uh, this great thing about moralistic therapeutic deism in Christian Smith's book. You know, he's like you know most young young people today, adolescents, millennials. He you know traces all these people through into emerging adulthood. They're moralistic therape- therapeutic deists. They're moralistic. Religion's all about, you know, one kid goes, don't be an asshole, right? And everybody pretty much knows what an asshole does. I mean, there are things we might disagree about, right? Like, how often do you recycle or do this? But basically, people know, <laughs> oh, that's what an asshole does. That isn't. I, 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 mean, I tell you, the definition of asshole has really changed from where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Right, that's it. Well, I tell you, trouble with trouble with Billy Bob up there, he just doesn't recycle. I, <laughs> I'm afraid that's not quite – well, anyway, but it's funny. It's all relative. Well, it's, yeah, but I mean, I, I think like, you know, you know, like that – like. That doesn't really, I don't think, take much, much artful imagination. I think what what takes imagination, like we were ta- I was talking about last episode, where Jefferson talks about how good fiction, you know, it, it, it so dilates the breast or whatever and, and, and expands sentiment, you know, that kind of. So to get pictures of, you know, like well, uh, in the next chapter, and how he has some beautiful meditations on the prodigal son story, and I mean to paint pictures of the divine reality that actually uh, give you the assurance that of something like the forgiveness of sins that frees you to love much, right? Right. I think that's actually very hard. And I don't think few, I think few people do it well. Well, uh, I think that's, that's why the great's narrow. It's not because, it's not because uh, uh, the, the, the broad is the great destruction is because we're not often willing to, you know, the, the pearl of great prize. We're not willing to sell all the field, sell everything we have for mercy. I mean, we, we still, I think part of when we continue to negotiate our sins, however we do that, whether we do it through progressive activism or, uh, you know, more legalistic list, what we haven't done is we haven't we haven't gone all in. We haven't uh, you know we haven't sold everything we have for that pearl of great price. And I think to me, um, part of the answer to narcissism uh, is that you will know the truth, and the truth of yourself will set you free. I mean, the great the great see the, I think that one of the things we get about God wrong so wrong is we seem to be so much more upset about a lot of stuff that if you look at the, if you just take the Bible. You know, it was interesting. We were having a very interesting conversation that will be a podcast someday about trying to read the Bible, you know, and, and not trying to keep it in a historical critical box or whatever, just letting it, just letting it, taking it at face value. And it's a weird story. But one of the things, if, if God's behind the story at all, it seems like God's like kind of a lot more flexible about stuff than, than we are. And I think that flows from, you know, God only has one thing to give. That's God's love. And God only wants one thing. He wants us. And again, if that, by saying yes to that, um, you know, we truly will be set free. But you, that's a hard yes. I agree with you. Yeah. Halik says that, you know, he, he talks about how, um, 
basically, he, he says that people who are, this might be in the next chapter, actually, but he talks about how when people who are really outside the church see a post that God is love or Jesus has loves you or something, and they get frustrated because there's a thinness to it. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that, like, sometimes there's a lot of talk of love of God where there's a thinness. And I think, you know, Von Ballensart talks about how, you know, love alone is credible and, and, and the sort of, in the way that love is true and beautiful and, and good it is in the, the beauty of the self-offering of God in the cross, which, which it, at first doesn't look beautiful and it, become, it becomes beautiful because of its own uh, aesthetic and alluring power. And I think that, you know, I just, I just finished the left show, The Leftovers, which was incredibly well done. It's done by the guy that, one of the guys is the guy that wrote Lost. And I, and I thought it was a much better conclusion than Lost. Not that I thought Lost was awful, but, but it was much, and, and the, the last episode was beautiful. I mean, just so powerful. And the whole, it, and the whole show has had a very mysterious kind of wrap up. And it was a really powerful show about love, loss, abandonment, fear of, of, giving yourself to another and, and it was just beautiful. And I think that I think that that is the kind of thing that actually breaks the narcissism when when the picture of the love of God is is painted in a way that it draws your attention sort of out of the self-enclosure that what is Luther talks about the incurvature to the self where it takes you out of that incurvature and opens you up to the to the one who whose love makes you feel beloved and then makes you uh, then a receptacle and channel of that love. Yeah. So that's beautiful. So we are narcissistic enough to think you want to listen to us, but we're humble enough to always be grateful that you do. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and we'll talk to you next time. Sometimes, man, you find a song and you hear it one way and you miss it. You miss, you miss what's going on in there. And that's why great pop music is, I mean, like, great pop music writers... Essentially what they're doing is they're just building great Trojan horses. And uh, boys, I mean, like, this is one of those songs for me that in the, by one of my favorite songwriters, and when it came out probably in the 80s, it just, I, I sang it, I knew every word, and I know, and I, but I didn't, I didn't know one word of it. And uh, I love this song. And so let's see if you can recognize this one. Just a sinner, I am told. Be a fire when you're cold. 
make you happy when you're sad I make you good when you are bad I'm not a human, I'm a dove I'm your conscience, I'm love Oh, and all I really need Is to know that you believe That I would die for you Oh, you I would die for you Darling, if you want me to I would die for you